G'day, everyone. Uh, some passages of Scripture are hard, uh, hard to understand. Others are hard uh, because they speak on hard things. This passage manages to be both. So uh, I'm going to pray for us as we begin. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray for me as I preach this passage, uh, that you'll help me to teach it faithfully and uh, clearly. Uh, but more than that, we pray for all of us, that you will give us minds that are ready to grapple with your word and seek to understand it, uh, but especially that you give us hearts that are ready to receive it in faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we heard a pretty hard-hitting passage of Scripture. Troy preached for us last week. Uh, you might remember, flick back to chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 last week. You probably were grappling with it in your gospel teams as well. Uh, one of our preachers, uh, in fact it was Dave, last week, he was preaching one of the morning congregations and he joked it was our Mother's Day special uh, to preach on a passage about the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's wrath. Uh, Troy kept calling it wrath last week. That just sounds American to me. So I'm going to say wrath. Anyway, there we go. Uh, did anyone else notice that? Anyone else have a debate about that in their gospel team? Well, anyway, uh, there's a couple. There we are. All right. But last week, Troy really helpfully showed us humanity's greatest problem. People might think our great problem is climate change. On the, on the front page of this morning's paper, our great problem is the cost of living, apparently. Uh, but no, our greatest problem is actually our sin... And in particular, our sin and the fact that God is righteous, that is our greatest problem, uh, because the righteous God has said he will judge our sin. Uh, there is our problem. And so last week's passage, remember, flick back, told us that the essence of sin is actually not all these things we do, the, the essence of sin is that we fail to recognise God for who he is. We fail to give God the honour he deserves. We fail to give God the thanks that he deserves. It said, humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That was the, the key line from last week. Instead of worshipping God, what do we do? We worship his creation. Uh, and so you see that in the idolatry of the pagan religions, uh, where, where we worship an idol made of wood, but we do it just as much today in the modern world where we worship another part of God's creation. We worship ourselves. Uh, and so that is the essence of sin. And because of that, it said, God hands us over to sin. Uh, he hands us over. He lets us do what our sinful hearts want to do. Uh, and so chapter one was actually pretty graphic about the sin of our world, wasn't it? It went from sexual immorality to greed and pride and arrogance and envy. And it was a horribly dark picture of us, of, of human beings. But I think there would have been two different types of people here listening last week. Uh, most of us would fall into one of these two camps, though some of us, in fact a lot of us probably managed to somehow be in both camps at the same time, but, but there would have been people here who'd be thinking, that is me who Paul is describing. Especially if you are uh, converted to become a Christian from a, from a totally non-Christian background, you'd be thinking, that is me, that's exactly what I was like. What he's describing there is what I was like before I became a Christian, or perhaps it's still me. I still struggle with these things. That's, that's one group of people who would be listening. But there's another group who might have been thinking something on these lines, you tell them, Paul. That is exactly what our world is like. I'm so glad that I'm not like our world. I'm, I'm so glad that that's them and not me. Many years ago when I was playing footy, uh, you may be surprised to know, I wasn't the most disciplined player on the football field. And uh, we were playing a game and the opposition just seemed to be getting away with all sorts of dirty play and eventually the referee had enough 
and he sent one of their players off. And I couldn't help myself. I said, good on you, ref, at last. And he said, and you can go too, because <laughs> you're just as bad. There's something, that's this passage, if you like. That's what we're going to see. Now, you see, there's actually something right about that reaction of that, look at our world, I hate the way our world is, because too many of us, I think modern Christians, have actually become inoculated against sin. We've started to believe the world's lies. We, we, think, we call things that God says are awful lifestyle choices and things like that. Now, God hates sin, and, and so should we. But it's very easy to go from that to starting to think then that we are better than the people that Paul is describing or was describing in Romans chapter 1. And those two groups are nothing new because in the Roman church, when they first got this letter, there would have been Gentiles sitting there saying... That is what I was like. I used to worship idols. The, the sin Paul is describing is my life. But many of the Jews who were there and some of the God-fearing Gentiles would have said, that wasn't me. I've never been like that. I've always worshipped the, the one true God. I've never even heard of some of those sins we, we read about in, the, in those lists last week. I'm so glad I don't deserve God's wrath like they do. And it's to that person that Paul now turns, or perhaps that part of you, if you're in both camps. It's actually really clever how he does it. Go back to chapter 1. Do you notice how chapter 1 was all them and they? You notice in last week's passage it was they do this, they're like that, that sort of thing. Now, at the start of chapter 2, he, he changes to you. And he says, hang on, don't, don't you judge, because I'm actually talking about you too. And so I've called this first section, God's wrath on the self-righteous. And come with me to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, he's talking to the Jews here who thought because they had God's law, they were better than other people. But he's saying, you be very, very careful. You might have God's law, but do you actually keep it? Look at verse 3. He says, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? We we'll go down to verse 13. He says, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. See, his point is, you might have God's law and you might know it really well, but do you actually do it? Really? I think here Paul has in his mind Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember we looked on the Sermon on the Mount in our gospel teams earlier in the year. Uh, you might have done all these things that I've said they do, but can you really tell me that you haven't hated? Can you really tell me you haven't been envious? Can you really tell me you haven't lusted, really? Can you really tell me that, that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Because that's what God's law demands. Can, can you really tell me that you've loved your neighbour as yourself? Because that's what God's law demands. You see, we human beings, we are very, very good at judging other people and then excusing ourselves. It, it is a, a gift that just about every human being on earth has. We are incredibly good at spotting the sin in other people and judging them for it, whilst coming up with exceptions for why it's not quite as bad in us. As I was looking at the list last week in, uh, in chapter 1, I asked my gospel team, I said, you know, pick out one sin that particularly strikes you. And one of the ones that came up was the sin of envy or, or jealousy. And I thought about it, you see, when you see envy in other people, it's ugly, isn't it? It's hot. When you see it in other people, you think, gosh, that, that's awful. That's, I'm glad I'm not like that. 
And that's what we do, don't we? we? We look at envy in other people, we say, gee, that's ugly. And then almost in the same breath, we turn and say, gee, I want what she's got. We are incredible, sinful human beings, the way we can spot sin and guilt in others and yet ignore our own. You see, knowing God's law was not meant to make them feel superior to the Gentile pagans out there. It wasn't meant to make them judgmental of other people for their sin. It was meant to lead them to see their own sin and to repent and turn to God. So look at verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his God's kindness, restraint and patience, not recognising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So if you want to say, look at me, I'm much better than those awful sinners out there, be very careful. And verse 5 rams at home. He says, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. See, really, this is the big point of this chapter, the point to take away. All have sinned. There is no one righteous. All people deserve God's judgment. See, we all love to compare ourselves to others. It gives us comfort to think there's someone further down than me. There's someone who's a worse sinner than me. Paul says, don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. There is a day of wrath. Worry about yourself and what will happen to you on that day. So as hard as it is, let's think about what verse 5 talked about there, what we call the day of wrath. See, last week uh, we saw how God's wrath is actually on display now. As people throw themselves into sin, they think they're showing their freedom, you know, to be what they want to be and do what they want to do. And so they think, look at that, as I I kick off the Bible's constraints on me, as I kick off and and move away from God, look at the freedom I have. What they don't realise is it's not freedom, it's actually God's judgment on them, handing them over to their destructive behaviour. Troy used the image last week of the father who catches his son smoking and then makes him smoke the whole pack until, until he's sick. I don't know what the equivalent is with vapes, but you you get the point. That The the idea is the further we we move away from from God, the further we move away from God's ideas of right and wrong, we're actually experiencing God's judgment. The more our world actually is a place of despair and of hope. Don't buy the lie that, that, you know, chasing your dreams and chasing the things of this world is fulfilling. It's not. Look at the way as we've moved away as a society, away from God's way of living... What is our world now? It's more and more despairing. It's more and more hopeless. God's wrath is already revealed in our world. But chapter 2 tells us that that's only the beginning. All of history is heading to this one day, a judgment day, the day when Christ will return in glory and he will judge everyone and it will be a day of wrath. This is why, by the way, we, as a general rule, just preach through the Bible. You know, we we just read a a book of the Bible, we look at chapter 1, and then we look at chapter 2, and look at chapter 3. We don't just sort of say, what topic does Phil want to talk about this week? Sometimes we speak about topics, but most often we preach through books of the Bible. The reason for that is, if I was just choosing what I wanted to preach on, I would never preach on the day of wrath. I would understand, I like people to like me. I I don't want, but because that's why we do this, because we need to hear it. No one likes this idea, do they? We all struggle with the idea of God judging all of humanity. But if you think about it, any alternative is far worse. The idea that people get away with things for all eternity is actually a horrible thought. 
That would mean God does not care. God does not care about justice. There is a day of wrath because God is righteous and God is loving and he cares. And here is the big point our chapter is making. There will be no favoritism on that day. See, the Jews thought they would get special treatment. They actually did look forward to the day of wrath, many of them. Because they thought on the day of wrath, we get special treatment, but all those pagans out there will get judged. But no, there's no special treatment. That's what he focused on down in verses 17 to 29. We're not going to look at that closely tonight. You can have a look at it in your gospel teams. See, the apostle is saying, no, no, no. Whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, whatever your race, whatever your nationality, it doesn't matter. God is going to judge everyone. So like he says, look at verse 11. There is no favoritism with God. And there is no favoritism because we will all be judged on the basis of our works. Now, at this point, I want to say to you, I'm a realist. I know that very, very occasionally when I'm preaching, sometimes people switch off. Very, not more when other people are preaching, but, but, <laughs> but very occasionally. What I'm going to say to you tonight, please do not do that in tonight's sermon. Because if you don't listen right through to the end, you're going to get things all wrong. And you're going to go away and say, I said things I didn't mean to say. So I, want you to, I just want you to commit to me, you're going to stick with it however hard it gets, all right? What he's saying here is we will all be judged on the basis of our works. Look at verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. See, when we stand before God on the last day, whoever we are, God will judge us according to the way we have lived here on earth. And there are two potential outcomes, and you see them in verses 7 to 10. Firstly, there is life. Look at verse 7. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. That's one path. But then there is the path of God's wrath. Look at verse 8. But wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth but are obeying unrighteousness. See, if we disobey God's truth, if we put ourselves first, if we are self-seeking, then God's wrath is our fate. Now remember, he's talking about the judgment part here, not how we're saved from that judgment, not yet anyway. So what's the point he's making? He's saying it is not just those sexually promiscuous, evil-loving pagans of chapter 1 who will be judged for the way they have lived. Everyone will be, even you Jews and even you morally superior people who have God's law and think you're so much more righteous than everyone else. Everyone will be judged. There is no favoritism with God. But, someone might say, what about if we didn't know God's standards? Now, I think this he's talking particularly here about back in the ancient world, before the coming of Christ, because I think today there is no one here who does not know God's standards. But, but back then, the Jews had the law. They had the Old Testament. They knew what they were breaking. They knew what they were doing wrong. Other people didn't know what was right and wrong. How is a Gentile living out there to know what what God's standards were? It's a good question, isn't it? It's actually one of the most common questions that comes up at the life course as we're sitting there at tables talking to people. And he answered it a bit last week in chapter 1. Do you remember his answer? Your gospel team probably had a spirited discussion about it like mine did on Wednesday night. He said, just by living in this world... Every person has enough evidence to mean that we are guilty of rejecting God. Just by living in this world and looking up and seeing the sun and seeing the stars and seeing the mountains and everything, even if you've never read the Bible, heard the Ten Commandments, 
you know enough to be guilty of failing to honour God. But now he adds a bit more than that. The judgment day will be fair because people will be judged according to their knowledge. So look from verse 12. He says, all those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's he saying? He's saying Jews who've lived with God's law, who had that knowledge, will be judged for failing to keep it. That's the standard against which they'll be judged. But Gentiles who never heard God's law, they'll still be judged, but not by that standard. So what's the standard God's going to use for them? Well, he says, they, Gentiles, who've never heard the Ten Commandments, should still know right and wrong, and they'll be judged accordingly. So that's his point in verse 14, look there. He says, so when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Now stick with me here. The, the point he's making is a Gentile who's never heard the law still knows right and wrong. They might not know all the aspects of God's law, but they still know right and wrong. You, you shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know that God deserves glory and honour. You, you shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know stealing is wrong. Keep your hands to yourself. You shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't be unfaithful, you shouldn't murder. So when we stand before God, we will be judged according to what we know. A Jew who had the law will be judged according to the law. A Gentile who'd never heard God's law will still be judged, but according to what they should understand from what has been revealed to them. But the point is, God is fair. He doesn't judge people unfairly. And more than that, do you notice there in verse 16, God will not just judge according to what we see. On the day of wrath, on the judgment day, we are going to be shocked sometimes by different people, the judgment on, on different people. Because God judges what people have kept secret. God judges the very thoughts and inclinations of our heart, which is a very, very scary thought, at least it is for me. It's easy to appear moral, it's easy to appear upright to the people around us, but you cannot hide the reality of your heart from God. The reality is there will be a lot of hypocrites who will be exposed on the judgment day. People who have put on a veneer of morality to cover all sorts of secret sins. People who will say, but I was a member of the parish council. I led a gospel team. And God will say, but I know how you treated your family at home. People will say, but I never committed bad sins. But God will say, I know the hate in your heart. I know how you judged people all the time. People will say, but I never committed adultery. And God will say, I know the lustful thoughts you entertained and the pornography you watched in secret. I never stole anything. God will say, I know the way you coveted and you were never content with what I gave you. It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? That, that is the judgment day. And the whole point of chapter 2 is, everyone will face it. And no one will be able to complain, it wasn't fair. We won't be able to do that thing we all did to our parents. That's not fair. You won't be able to say that to God. And so as we read this, we're meant to ask, so what will happen to me on the day of wrath? When God exposes the secrets of my heart, when my works are judged, 
against the standards of his law, how will I go? Let me tell you, I will fail. I will fall far short. I will deserve God's wrath. And if you think you won't fail, go back to verse 1 and start reading again because you haven't understood a word I've said. Because that's the whole point of this. You are who Paul is talking to. The whole point of Romans 1 and 2 is to show us that whether you are the immoral pagan of chapter 1 or the self-righteous Jew of chapter 2, we deserve God's righteous wrath. I've purposely tried to tone down any humour tonight. You might think I'm never funny, but that's by the by. But I've tried to tone it down because these chapters are meant to drive us to despair. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? I've invited you here on a Sunday night to drive you to despair. But, But that is what these chapters are meant to do. It sounds horrible. They are meant to show us the reality of our situation. It's meant to show us what he'll get to in chapter 3, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. See, chapter 2 is here so that when we get to chapter 3, we will grasp just how much we need God's salvation. Whatever you do, remember I said before, whatever you do, stick with me right through tonight's sermon. Now I want to put another challenge. Whatever you do, don't leave after tonight and not come back next week. Do not miss chapter 3. I would hate, I would hate it if you, if you thought the end of the message was the end of Romans chapter 2 because it's there that we'll find the answer to our problem. The solution is that Jesus has died to take the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself and we accept that gift by faith alone in Christ alone. Now you might think, why not go straight to chapter 3 then? You know, why do three weeks on chapters 1 and 2? Couldn't you have just done one week and then get us there quicker? Why bludgeon us into submission with, with chapter 1 and then chapter 2? I'll tell you why not. It's because you can only ever understand the wonder of God's grace when you first grasp the depth of your own sin. You can only understand, you can only ever understand the wonder of God's grace when you actually first understand the rightness and fairness and certainty of your own judgment. So you can only understand how wonderful the light is when you have experienced total darkness. That's the reality. If, if you think you're good enough for God, you will never grasp the gospel. It's actually my key indicator of whether someone has understood the gospel is do they think they are a sinner? It's the key indicator. Do you think, do you come here, when we pray a confession prayer at church, do you say, yeah, I need to do that? Because I've sinned every day and I've sinned, even while I've been here in church, I've sinned in my mind. If you think you're good enough for God, you'll never grasp why you need Jesus. This is a dark chapter, but it's actually wonderful in a way, or important perhaps, because it will help us see the beauty of the light. That's why it's here. But... There is an issue here that I haven't quite addressed yet. I wonder if you've noticed it. Uh, For those of you who are thinking really hard, you will be uncomfortable with this chapter. So if you're sitting there and thinking, I wasn't uncomfortable, you're thinking, he's still saying I don't think very hard. But anyway, even as it was being read before, if you're someone who who knows and loves the gospel, there would have been things as they read where you would have looked back at your Bible and said, did it say that? Did the reader get it wrong? Did they not practice it beforehand? Or things I've said that will make you uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about the wrath and judgment parts. Look again at verses 6 and 7. It says, He, God, will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life 
to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. And he says something similar now in verse 13. That doesn't seem right, does it? Because if, you've, if, if you don't get know this, I have failed as a preacher for the last however many years I've been teaching you. Uh, you know we are saved how? By grace alone, the free gift of God. And you receive that gift how? By faith alone, in Christ alone. A few more people added in each time, but some of you stayed silent, which is worrying. But any, you see, but here it says, he will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory. He seems to be saying it might be possible to earn eternal life if you persist in doing good. Now, he cannot be saying that. I'll tell you why. Because in chapter 3, he says, I'm not saying that. In chapter 3, he finally gets to the climax and he tells us there is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. The only way to find eternal life, the only way to be declared righteous is by faith in Jesus. The only way is if Jesus takes away your sin and gives you the gift of his righteousness which you receive by faith. Faith alone, in Christ alone. So given that that's a given, what is he saying here in verses 7 and verse 13? I think there are two legitimate possibilities of what he's saying here in these verses. Both are true from other parts of Scripture. And I want you to think about these in your gospel teams on Wednesday night. The first option is what he's doing is he is describing the Christian in these verses. He's describing the person who's come to know Jesus, has found faith in Jesus, and because of our faith in Jesus, is now able to seek God's glory. Because, you see, before you have faith in Jesus, your works are just filthy rags because they're, they're not for God's glory. But as Christians, we are able to do good works. You know, in Ephesians 2, where it says we're saved by grace through faith in order to do the good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, on the judgment day, God will look at our good works as the evidence of our faith. I think Christians often forget this or don't understand this. There is no condemnation on that day for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You are saved by faith. We rightly focus on that. But our works will still be judged on the judgment day. You've been declared righteous. Your salvation is not at stake. But even so, our works will still be judged on that day because God loves the good works that flow from our faith in Jesus. A key verse on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It will come up on the screen. It says, for we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, he's talking about Christians, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. See what he's saying there? He's saying our good works done in faith, the things we've done because Christ has saved us, they will actually be rewarded on the judgment day and the worthless things will be burnt away. There is still a judgment of works for Christians. Understand that. Don't waste your life. Use it well for Jesus. Do what you do for the glory of God. But those good works we do will be the evidence of our faith on that judgment. You won't be saved by them. See, God judges the heart. He, he knows real faith. He knows people who don't truly trust in Christ. But the evidence that will be put forward at the tribunal of Christ, the evidence will be the good works we've done through faith. We're saved by faith alone, justified by faith alone, but a true and living faith will show itself, it'll be evidenced by the good works. And so back to Romans chapter 2, that's one possibility 
uh, of what this is talking for. It's like Paul is jumping forward in his argument and, and talking about Christians who are able to do these good works by faith. And on the judgment day, God will look at them in that way. Now, that is certainly true from other parts of Scripture, but I don't think it's the point here in this passage. Sorry for having spent so long on it, but uh, I did that because smarter people than me think it is what it's saying. I'll tell you what I think it's saying. I think here he is talking about the standard that we do not reach. I think here Paul isn't talking about salvation yet. That's not till chapter 3. He's just talking about the judgment of God, and what he's doing is he's establishing God's standards and he's talking about the fact I said before that it will be totally fair and so he's saying if you did keep the whole law you would receive eternal life if you did persist in all your life in doing good and seeking after God and his honor and glory if you did love God with all your heart soul mind and strength if you truly did love your neighbor as yourself you would be righteous you would receive eternal life God is fair He judges according to his law. But the problem is, no one other than Jesus does. So when we get to chapter 3 next week, Paul will say, no one truly does seek God and his glory. No one is righteous, not even one. And so our only hope on that judgment day is to trust in Christ and his righteousness. Our only hope is not to try to tell God how righteous we are. Not to try to tell God how we're better than other people. Our only hope is to admit that we are sinners too, but we trust in Jesus. See, that is the main point of this passage. There will be a judgment day. It will be totally fair. There'll be no special leave passes out of God's judgment because someone's a Jew or a Gentile or they went to church or they were baptised as a kid or whatever. And God will not be interested on that day by the fact that you're better than someone else. God won't be interested on that day by the fact that you aren't a debauched pagan like those people out there. God isn't interested in the fact that you're comparatively moral. He's not interested in the fact that you're well-respected in the church community. In fact, if anything, God will hold us to a higher standard. He will hold people to a higher standard who have had opportunities to hear his word but have not listened. God's judgment will be horrible, but it will be more horrible for the churchgoer who has sat under his word week in, week out, but not turned and trusted in Christ. God's judgment will be more horrible for those who've heard his word and instead of admitting their own sin, have judged other people. This chapter is just a reminder that God hates sin, but he also hates pride and self-righteousness. But the thing is, God offers grace to both. In fact, God offers grace to anyone from the idolatrous pagan of chapter 1 through to the self-righteous Pharisee of chapter 2. God offers grace and forgiveness to anyone who just admits their sin and repents and turns and trusts in Christ alone. Despite how dark this chapter is, it's meant to drive us to praise, to praise God that he is both righteous and loving. And forgives even sinners like us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know all too well the reality of our own sin and we also know how quick we are to judge others, how quick we are to see sin in other people but excuse it in ourselves. And so Father, we repent of that. But Father, we thank you that knowing that we are sinners, 
we can turn and find salvation in Christ alone. And so we pray that as we hear these dark chapters, we will not look at other people and say, look at how it talks about them. Instead, we will see ourselves, but then we will turn to Christ and find forgiveness in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.